0: Welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast, I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. This is the second in an informal series looking at global health security, what it means in the light of new, existing and future pandemics, and how health issues impact more traditional definitions of security, which after nearly 30 years of a generally peaceful post-Cold War compact have been thrown into confusion again. Well, our guest today is Jay Stephen Morrison. He is someone whose thinking and advocacy has influenced many in the global health movement, myself included. He is a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, and he's the director of its Global Health Policy Center. Steve, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast.
1: Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you and uh, I've enjoyed The podcast series a shot in the arm for some time you've really created quite a nice body of work with lots of insight so it's my honor to be here with you today and a thanks to your production uh, personnel to to Eric for putting this all together for
0: us well it's very kind Steve Um, I've got to say you're someone that we've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while Um, but first question most important question what does the J stand for at the beginning of your name
1: well, you know, that's a question that I've refused to answer now for 40 years. So, you know, I today I'm going to actually break with <laughs> that for you Ben. Uh it's John. It's John, you know, it's J O H N. Full name John Yeah,
0: That's it. Well, I, well, I
1: I I've broken with uh 40 years today. 40
0: years of tradition broken yeah. away. Yeah. yeah. How how very third decade of the 21st century of you. Um But look, for our, well, I suppose our our domestic, but also particularly our international uh, viewers and listeners, can you describe CSIS and what your role is?
1: Well, CSIS, the Center for Strategic International Studies, it's a Washington-based, independent, nonpartisan think tank focused predominantly on foreign policy and international security. It was founded in 1962. By Admiral Burke, uh, who left the Clinton uh, left the Kennedy administration in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs invasion was in in disgust and decided to march over with a young man uh, at his side who went on David Abshire went on to become president of the institution to Georgetown. So it was established initially at Georgetown, was there until it outgrew that space uh, and uh, has become what it is, which we're a fully integrated think tank. We have about 400 employees and a number of programs. I run the Global Health Policy Center, uh, which was established in 08, end of 08. And prior to that, I had run the Africa program, CSIS. And we had started out of the back pocket of the Africa program in 2001, the uh, CSIS HIV uh, uh, task force headed by Senators John Kerry and Bill Frist. And that Task force became quite integral in the early days of thinking through what became PEPFAR. And then we carried it forward for a number of years into '07. i I'm a political scientist. Uh, the uh, work that we do uh, since '08 at, at CSIS and Global Health Policy Center focused a lot on health security. It's focused a lot on gender issues, maternal and child health, reproductive health, has focused a great deal on other infectious diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, polio, uh,
0: so and prevention programs. I'm, I'm really interested, Steve. You you mentioned that your background is in political science. How, yeah. how has that affected the lens, uh, perhaps, through which you see global health? Has it been a help or a hindrance?
1: Well, I hope it's a help. Um, although maybe I'm just struggling against myself. I don't know. Um, or those political scientists who are somehow buried in my head. I don't know. the um, I mean, I think it helps in the sense that uh, we, by definition, are going to take a fairly broad and multidimensional approach. Uh, we are going to be emphasizing the fundamental humanitarian and ethical basis of work in global health that remains foundational. Mm. But we're also going to be looking at the stability consequences, the degree to which U.S. investment, bilateral and multilateral, is something which advances U.S. national interests. And advances U.S. national interests because it's satisfying an ethical and humanitarian obligation at the same time that it's promoting security, particularly when you have very dangerous and destabilizing um, pathogens that are introduced that can savage a society, undermine an economy, create instability, refugee flows and the like. And tied in with that, I think is also that these are these interventions, these contributions are ones which serve to advance equity, they serve to advance um, access, they serve to advance the prosperity of communities that Communities in low and middle income countries uh, are in a process of attempting to move forward their communities in the governance and the economic stability of their communities, the prosperity in the future and hope and hopes that their communities have and health remains so vitally important in building that sort of healthy community. And so it has those different dimensions and in our view, these are not exclusive exclusive to one another. You can talk about the humanitarian imperative as the lead imperative. You can talk about the ethical obligations as the lead element. That does not discount or undermine the validity of talking about the degree to which these are foundational to a sense of global security. And with Ebola, Zika, pandemic flu, COVID, now monkeypox, these are issues that As we've seen in the weekend declaration by the WHO Emergency Committee on monkeypox, these are things that can be destabilizing enough to be declared public health emergencies of an international
0: concern. So, Steve, I'm really glad you said that because um, this sort of hand in glove, uh, the uh, ethical, moral solidarity around health, but also... Its broader impact on on everyone's security, and I learned that, of course, very much from working with um, right. the late Ambassador Richard Holbrook. Um, y- you mentioned the WHO declaration of monkeypox yeah. as a uh, public health emergency, and I just wondered what your take was on that, because basically Dr. Tedros overrode his um, advisory committee to to make that declaration um and i just wonder what you think uh, the impact of that is going to be
1: well it's the actual impact it's too early to say um uh, just a few quick comments on that decision by dr tedros this was the second meeting in short order by the emergency committee to evaluate uh the monkey the monkeypox outbreak um my personal view is dr tedros made the right strategic decision um at this moment in order to make that declaration it it is acknowledging that this has spread to multiple continents and become a pandemic and has the th- and is a threat to the populations that it is circulating most predominantly in today which is men who have sex with men transgender population but it's spreading into other populations as well mm. and in and to into other continents this is a uh, this is something we've known about since the late '50s, known, confirmed, in, as of 1970. But we have thought of it as as a less, far less dangerous variant of the of the same orthopox uh, uh, class that includes smallpox, but concentrated largely in Central and West Africa. Well, that's now changed, and yeah. uh, what we're seeing is the the re- the reality that this may become endemic within the United States, within Europe, within Canada. We don't know much about where it, we're seeing it in Latin America and Asia. There are, I think Dr. Tejos has said some of why he felt this way. I think he feels that it qualifies. I think the step itself will generate higher level political attention and finances. We are. This is suffering in the midst of this fatigued moment in the COVID response, we're thirty-one, 31, 32 months into COVID response, and attention has turned away. Finances are declining, and the like. And there is an exhausted, demoralized, depleted health systems. Uh, so and- I
0: want I want to come back to the yeah. to the state of COVID in a in a minute. Right. Um, but I really uh, to, to to sort of get to the heart of it. Uh, wanted to understand your sense of what you mean by global health security, and I think. Monkeypox absolutely fits into that. And if you don't mind my quoting from uh, the CDC, who still um, define global health security as, the existence of strong and resilient public health systems that can prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease threats. Well, monkeypox, COVID, and of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is this still relevant? How does health fit into the 2020 definitions of global security for you?
1: Well, it fits in a much more prominent and credible and widely acknowledged place than it did before. Look, we've had a rapid succession of crises over the last 25 years. I mean, let's, we had HIV emerge in, in, in 1981 uh, and uh, and, and become a, uh, a, a, a catastrophe, visible catastrophe uh, in the raging uh, wave of infections, particularly in southern and eastern Africa in the, not dec- in the 90s and into the early NOT decade. And that shocked the world. And out of that came the Global Fund. And out of that came new technologies, ARTs. Out of that came PEPFAR and many other things. And a broader consciousness. That extended into other infectious diseases um, uh, and and the, and the like, and we've been we've had SARS, the earlier version of SARS. We've had uh, multiple pandemic flus. We've had Ebola and Zika, and now we have this. So the frequency, the velocity, the dangerous and colossal costs associated with these. Um, there's it's it's difficult to argue that we are not living in an age in which we have to attend to these threats in much the same way we're trying to get the world's attention focused on climate change and the like and they're not disconnected no so-
0: not, a, not at all and i uh, sorry to dive in here and i um you know we're going to come back to this the question of one health of climate change yeah. of food security all of these things are related in ways that perhaps we, in the very early days of HIV, didn't understand we were, we were AIDS exceptionalists. Yeah. But there's one other feature of the moment um, that I'd really love to get your thoughts on. You have said that Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February has had a radical uh, and dramatically rapid impact on uh, the emerging pandemic preparation agenda. What did you mean by that?
1: prior to february 24th which was the date 6am when russia invaded ukraine earlier this year prior to that we'd already begun to see a sea change happening within the world with respect to covid we were seeing the you know the 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 wall of immunity created by the mass in, mass vaccination effort against omicron omicron tearing through the world really fast and creating a wall of immunity from infectious uh, from infection with COVID. Um, we saw the era, advent of therapies. We saw uh, fatigue and populations across the world saying, um, we want this to be over. We wanna move out of the emergency phase into endemic. Political attention was declining. Finances were becoming much more difficult. We've seen that in the United States play through over the last six months, repeated debacles over trying to get predictable and reliable funding for uh, for the health, for the response on COVID, the, both the response and preparedness. And then we have Ukraine happen. And what has that meant? Well, it's meant many things. On the finances side, from the U.S. standpoint alone, it's consumed $54 billion in emergency money, and that includes some for the food insecurity and the like but it's dominated, geopolitically dominated the attention of the Transatlantic Alliance and others. So in terms of high level focus, prioritization and money, uh, it has it is profound. It's the first major war in Europe in 70 years. It's a long war. It's not being resolved quickly. It's going to stretch well into the next decade. It's enormously expensive. I just cited the 54 billion from the US. You can add that. Together, the many the many other commitments, and you can think about what the reconstruction is going to look like. The th- other thing I'd say is it's changed the polit- geopolitical order. Uh, Russia is going to be on the outs for a very very long time, and likely aligned with with China. We're staring at the possibility of a cold war bifurcation between the transatlantic alliance. China and, and, and Russia. and then the question is where are the alliances or the allegiance of the low and mi- of low and middle income countries? And that's something we can talk about. The last thing I'd say is it's re- it's released a sudden surge of, of, of geostrategic threats against low and middle income countries. Look, interest rates are rising really rapidly. That's pushing these countries into debt distress. Very, very acute dis- debt distress. And um, and 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 it was already fragile, but it's it's sending that up. Fuel costs are soaring. Inflation is part of that, going through the ceiling. Food insecurity. Now we have the the, the Istanbul Accord. Hopefully that will ease ease some of that. But and when you get rising food, the last food shocks we had in 08 set off riots. Look at what's happened in Sri Lanka. That's a pretty dramatic mm. meltdown that captures some of what i'm arguing here which is that four or five of these major vectors of instability are being aggravated and driven forward as a result of ukraine and that pushes the covid agenda back on out of view i mean if you look at the statements being made by major bodies about this you see very little reference if you go right. to the g7 communique right the lead items don't make any reference to this. There's a nice two page page and a half statement in the communique that repeats the past commitments, but it's not front loaded at all. And so now there that's there
0: what are, we, yeah, no sorry so there there are two elements to to this that i I, I think you've touched on that I think are are really interesting. and <clears throat> um the first episode we did on global health security was with Gail Smith um yes. of the one campaign. and I put, a question to her, and I, I hope you don't mind if I do the same to you. And I, it kicks off with a quote that Tony Blair made, um, uh, which has really struck, uh, struck with me. And he said that Africa is never gonna want to be in the situation again where it is having to rely on international cooperation in circumstances where it's obvious that in a pandemic, every country is going to look at its own interests. And Steve, what I take from this is that it's really in the West's strategic interest that we support um, in middle uh, and low-income countries, or in security terms, the non-aligned movement, that we help them build local manufacture, that we think about um, vaccine equity, because uh, why on earth would we expect them to support our collective uh, position against Russia when the pandemic hit, we weren't able to provide the kind of resources to them. And we we had essentially a sort of a vaccine nationalism. Um, what's your take on this? You're talking with specific reference to Africa, right? Well, I think it can also apply to um, lower middle income countries in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, yeah. Uh, yeah. and of course, parts of uh, South America as well. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think we need to, in some ways, treat these in slightly different ways. But The broad point is that low and middle income countries overwhelmingly are on the fence. They're hedging their bets in the midst of Ukraine. They're attempting to keep themselves out of the fray and not have to make a choice, hard choice, between what is emerging as two geopolitical blocks in great tension with one another, the transatlantic alliance of the U.S., Canada, U.K., Europe, EU, NATO, and a Russia and China block that's emerging here. So uh, you look at the votes in the U.N., and that's very well reflected. Now, what's happening this week? This week, Lavrov is cruising around Africa uh, trying to uh, uh, see to what degree he can convince them to be vocal in condemning the United States for the food insecurity or the West for the food insecurity and the inflation and the, and the debt distress that they're experiencing. So there's a, uh, there's, a, um, there's a competition going on and we're gonna see some very senior American diplomats uh, cruising around Africa this week as well, doing the a, doing a similar dance. So there's a sensitivity that they are in play. Africa is at, is at play and uh, there's no single opinion by any means, and I think there's skepticism across the board. China's model of what it offers to most Africans is not particularly appealing, I Mm. believe, in most respects. They did very, very little. Okay, they had a a very aggressive vaccine diplomacy. Africa was largely ignored and left out of that vaccine diplomacy, let's be honest. They moved a a billion doses of vaccine in 12 months, almost none of that reached Africa. So let's not get ourselves. They were not seeing Africa as strategic partners and and they didn't follow up. And the debt associated with this is a very powerful element of that debt distress that I've been talking about.
0: Here. Oh, you're absolutely right, Steve. And, and I think of it in terms uh, of Zimbabwe, which has um Indebted itself very significantly yeah. to to the Chinese, yeah. um, and again, this kind of economic distress that appears, they have no way to really to 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 respond to it. So yeah, so, I, what,
1: so Ben, I think also you know what's Lavrov offering? Right, he's running mm. around Africa. What's he offering people? I mean, they have they have security arrangements. There's no question. They've been providing security assistance to to a range of countries in that. That has significance, but it's nothing compared to what the security relationship with India, which is half a billion dollars of purchase, half a trillion dollars of purchases of Soviet of, of Russian gear every year in the security phase in the security world by India. We're not we're talking peanuts in in Africa. We're also, however, talking about various forms of oligarchic money, Putin esque money that's showing up in the coffers. Of a whole bunch of important, very important mm. political parties that happen to be in power in Africa. And some of that has been disclosed. Some of it is linked in with platinum mining. Some of it is linked in this. So the Russians have have their ability to to work their magic. but i I think, frankly, they don't have much to offer Africa
0: in this I situation. think that's right. and 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 um y- y- you know, you have the value of, investments like PEPFAR and U.S. investments into the global fund that, um, y- you know, should really act as a bulwark. But basically, we screwed it up. I've got to say, we screwed it up um, over COVAX and support for their responses in, uh, in managing COVID. Well, really, to ask it, yourself,
1: it, ben, though, yes. I mean, yes, there's resentment. There's residual resentment within Africa for the fact that so, so many states were left back of the queue, on the on access, ready, affordable, quick access to vaccines for COVID. Um, and uh, yes, today we're in a situation of excess of a a a a, a mountain of vaccines that are going unused mm-hmm. in Africa. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself: Okay, we went from scarcity, acute scarcity, inequities, and the like then now we have overproduction, and we're going to see we've already seen an estimated billion doses of covid vaccines go to waste and here in the united states we're going to have we're going to be sitting on 600 million doses that we don't know what quite what to do with and the question in africa is is prioritization and capacity to manage them and we need the united states and other donors need to be very sensitive to that and be committed to building those capacities and there are plans on the works we're having trouble financing those, but we'll get over that. Uh, and and those will be much appreciated, but let's not kid ourselves also. Where in Africa are we seeing the prioritization of mo- of keeping the course on immunizing against COVID? That, this issue never got the same level of traction and attention that was estimated, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, not the least of which the human consequences of COVID were different, have been different. Yeah. Now, some countries, South Africa has done amazing stuff, amazing things. Uh, and, but I think it's a pretty complicated thing. So I wouldn't rush to judgment that COVID has ruined the the West's relationship with Africa. It's put stress on it. It's created resentment and around the inequities and the like. But there's a much bigger picture in which Africa, African leaders... Are looking at their current the current challenges in front of them and trying to figure out how to navigate this.
0: Um, that is hugely helpful, um, Steve. I, I, I think a really important uh, message that all of us in the public health community need to be aware of. Um, I, I've you've, you've given me the opportunity to have a fantastic bridge from COVID Ukraine into financing for global health. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the way the Europeans have responded to to Ukraine. Uh, Refugees. Um, There has been a flood of refugees into the European Union. Um, Not so much, or not at all really, in uh, my home country, the UK. But uh, my sense is that this has really affected the resilience of these nations, both their ability to absorb such populations but also their ability to provide social uh, welfare and health services to them. And uh, do you think that we in the United States um, fully appreciate the, um, the angst and concern that Europeans, who are also very significant contributors and donors to the global health movement, that That you know there's a limited pie here, and that they may prioritize things very differently from what they would have done at the beginning of this year.
1: Well, that's a great question, Ben. Um, a couple of a couple of thoughts. I mean, we've been paying a lot of attention to the human consequences of what's happened in 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 Europe and elsewhere and internal to Ukraine. Uh, the first phase of this war, uh, the EU member states showed just remarkable unity of purpose, generosity, openness. They pivoted. Uh, and, and, and it was remarkable to observe. And of course, in certain countries, Poland, for instance, which has, I don't know, probably well over 1.5 million permanent residents, or people that have re- registered to settle there versus transit Germany, which has well over a million that are registered. the UK is under a hundred thousand but many countries uh, in this period they they put the lead responsibility for absorption and finding housing, health care, schooling, employment and the like uh, upon municipalities. and those municipalities were then reimbursed and they were supported through the generosity of the EU. Uh, 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 provisions that were made and they were offered up to a three-year period, which was an astonishing policy and it's and stabilizing one and extraordinarily generous. I don't know what the current figures are because some people are migrating back, but keep in mind also that the, uh, the uh, astonishing speed with which 6 to 7 million people departed Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Starting at 44 million total population, and departed and went into the neighboring European states. So this was this was at rocket speed, and 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 it was managed quite well, quite well. But your point is, as you reach a saturation point, as you reach a point of very very long attrition, which is the war we're in, where it's not likely to be settled until sometime in 2023. Fears begin to rise about the affordability of this, about the management of the next wave. If there is a next wave, because, of course, what's happening in the South and the East in the Russian war is driving more people out. And it's a deliberate policy. Let's not kid ourselves. Russia's policy intent in this war was to drive people into Europe to make it painful and a burden. And the more they can continue to drive them. And let me just recount one story in this regard. I was talking last week with a very prominent European official in the health sector, who said and this was in a private, private conversation said, you know, we don't talk about this. But my country is bringing hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people into our medical system. People who have been dismembered through the deliberate shelling of civilian neighborhoods, because they have body armor, their heads are protected, but they're losing their legs and their arms. And we have, our system is full of hundreds upon hundreds of of these people. And they're going to survive and be able to function with prosthetics. But that's the picture of Ukraine for the next generation when this war ends and people come back. And we ha- haven't really fully appreciated the magnitude of that of 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 what that means the other thing i'd add about the angst that europeans have you have the frontline states poland romania baltics um uh, and those that are now joining nato right uh the swedes the Finns, they've got a they've got to worry day to day about uh, security attacks that come in mm. their direction and that includes slovakia and uh, others and um and so they have a And they have a historical memory that's alive and well on that. Then you have those that are a step back that are saying, wait a second, can't we end this because we fear the economic, the broader economic consequences. This war is coming on top of the pandemic's impacts on supply chains and upon uh, recovery of growth. And so the recession that we're pushing into globally the war is a central factor the pandemic is a central factor china's zero covid is a central
0: factor <laughs> you and- see i wanted you to sure. talk about about china uh, yeah. you've mentioned this before that the zero covid policy it's not just a public health response it has the potential to have a major impact on uh, the state of the global economy and um you know as we start talking about funding mechanisms essentially donors can really only make significant contributions if their economies are strong enough and resilient right. enough to be able to do so. So yes, what is going on with China's zero COVID policy? How's it gonna affect things?
1: Well, we've, you know, we've seen what's happened. I mean, just to back up for a moment, I mean, COVID, COVID the advent of COVID, 1st of January of 2020, last day of 2020, uh, 2019, um, the Chinese go into a very, very strong lockdown. I think it was seventy six days or something around that order. Fearsome lockdown mm-hmm. across the country and and then they are able to institute a system of of uh, highly digitalized surveillance, electronic surveillance, and fierce lockdowns whenever there were um Outbreaks and then closing their borders and instituting a system nationally for that, and it worked. It worked in the in the early phases to allow the remarkable recovery of the Chinese economy uh, in twenty at the end of twenty twenty into twenty twenty one and and the suppression suppression of the outbreak. But that has stopped with the arrival of these super fast. Super evasive um, uh, virus, Omicron subvariants. The other thing I'd say is that, of course, there's also been the problem with the quality of their vaccines. Right. Uh, And there's been the fact that they have been loathed, they face significant resistance and hesitation to vaccines, particularly among their own, their elderly population that have had historically very bad experiences with government vaccines and are not are resisting. So you have a hundred million of the 1.4 billion Chinese that are acutely vulnerable and they're elderly and they're under vaccinated or unvaccinated. So then you get the, you get the, 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 this, this in the spring, right? In the spring of this year, you start seeing these outbreaks and, and, and the worst of course, in this early phase was in Shanghai, brutal lockdowns, but it spread into many, many different areas that were the the zone of the greatest production in the country, and so at one point in May, June there were almost four hundred million people under total lockdown. in in and and that's and that was hugely disruptive to production, to consumerism, and to export markets. They've been able to institute a system, an amazing system of testing half a billion people every forty eight hours, but it's. So they've been able to restore some stability, but today 31 cities are in lockdown and th- yeah. over 300 million people or 250 million people under lockdown and it's a, it's a whack-a-mole thing. It's multiple concurrent outbreaks followed by lockdowns and the like with huge economic consequences that have been exported to the world so that our threat of recession that we're, everyone's talking about, are we heading into a global recession? Many, many leading economists believe we are, we'll see what happens, but what's happening in China is one of the three or four principal drivers of that, along with the Ukraine war and the broader impacts of the pandemic.
0: And and, and it reminds me of, of something that Richard Holbrook said to me many, many years ago, um, which is watch uh, the growth of the Chinese economy. And if it begins to stumble, then we have a global catastrophe on our hands. And, you know, we're just looking at new data and it looks like it's going to be a pretty much a wash this year, that there won't be really any meaningful growth in the country. So this brings us, Steve, to the, the question of financing mechanisms, because in the middle of all of this, we have um, the replenishment for the Global Fund, which is so critical, so important to saving, saving lives from AIDS, TB and malaria. And of course, we have the World Bank's uh, new financial intermediary fund, the FIF. And um, uh, you know, I'd love to get your take on the FIF first. I-, I confess, I was rolling my eyes when I saw the same old donors saying the same old things and potentially talking about the same old money um, that we're currently investing elsewhere. And I-, I-, I, you're much more optimistic, though, aren't you?
1: I am, and I. I do think that we need to look at the fifth not as something that is in a in a zero sum game com- competing for scarce dollars with uh, with the Global Fund or with PEPFAR or with other worthy uh, instruments that are essential for global health. I think we need to look at this as a tool that has emerged uh, with a surprising. Res- a surprisingly robust coalition, diversified coalition standing behind it in a non-traditional way. And what I mean by that is we had Ebola, we had the global health security agenda that was grew out of Ebola in which countries of all ilks, low income, middle income, high income, joined together with a bunch of other international institutions like Africa CDC AU, ASEAN, WHO, and others to look at how well prepared for pandemics, outbreaks are these countries. Let's quantify that, look at it systematically, come up with plans and budgets. But that process ended with no serious new commitments made, Mm. very, very little progress. And people were somewhat shocked by that and thought, okay, there has to be something that will shake the complacency and get these countries to invest in a higher level in their own work in partnership with external bodies and of course covid comes along and uh and shocks everyone and now we're in a in a risk zone of a descending back into complacency after the crisis and this instrument has come forward i think it got its big boost in the G20 in the high level independent panel that was put together it got validated by the Indonesians and many others. It had a strong US role. Interestingly, the Chinese were very quiet and did not object to the mm-hmm. proposal moving through the high level independent panel and being approved by the finance and health ministerial a few weeks ago. And now the Chinese have come in with a pledge of 50 million for this. Mm-hmm. United States ain't got the EU and some of the wealthy Europeans, the Germans and others to come in with this they got the Africa CDC and the AU on their on board they got the Indonesians and the ASEAN on board and that permitted the World Bank to do take the step it took in June which was to embrace this and say we will set this up as a fund and and we will define we will raise the funds and we will define the mode of governance and we will define what it is that it's going to do that's going to be catalytic but not redundant to what the Global Fund does and others? And will the fund and CEPI and others be eligible to join in in implementing this in a new and dynamic way? Right now they have about 1.25 billion pledged for the opening phase. They're awaiting other words. This is is gonna be a slow and incremental process. Estimated need per year was on the order of 10 billion, but- Uh, so it's not where we want to be, but it's moving forward. And, um, and and it fills a terribly important gap. And it has a non-traditional, coalitional, multilateral approach. And- but it,
0: in many ways, though, Steve, it sort of is quite traditional in that, you know, the lessons that we learned from HIV from, say, UNAIDS, but particularly the Global Fund, that you would have not only government actors, but... Uh, civil society, particularly affected communities on governance. Uh, And and I know that, you know, the World Bank is a very, very traditional old-school mechanism. Are you confident that uh, in setting this up, they will take the lessons of the Global Fund um, to make sure that it is truly inclusive and transparent?
1: I mean, that's a point of great debate right now. And I don't think that, I think that issue is terribly important. For the legitimacy and the and the functionality uh, of this of this instrument, it has to have a, a a legitimacy and a basis. And I believe that it will acquire that. It will acquire that if it consciously goes out and makes sure that happens. But also in how it defines what it's going to do as its top line priority in the first phase of its work, when it's not going to have a lot of money. But it's gotta pick its it's gotta pick its spots. And if it picks its spots around community-based surveillance capacity, community-based workforce strengthening, the global fund's not able to do everything. PEPFAR's mm. not able to do everything. They are not, they are not equipped in that way. And so it has to be value add, but it has to be value added on top of those other gains, and it has to have a range that reaches well beyond. Uh, the countries served by PEPFAR, and um, uh, and so I do think that there there is there's a window, and if, for building that legitimacy, I don't think that's been foreclosed. I would not rush to judgment. Right. The bank is the bank houses these intermediary funds for the climate change for other things. The bank is not is not setting the rules of order for how. The governance will proceed. That is to be determined by this coalition
0: that I've mentioned. So it's all to play for, basically. Um, and and then what about the Global Fund? Um, and I know we're getting to the top of the hour, but I we couldn't have a podcast about global health security without talking about the Global Fund replenishment and where we are now we're in the process of uh, all of us advocating to get our governments to contribute. So we've got to be upbeat about this. And obviously the US contribution, which was what an increase of 30%, really, really set uh, the bar high. Um, What do we have to do, given the challenges that our European colleagues face, to make sure that uh, the Global Fund is replenished as fully as possible?
1: Okay. um... Let's just remind the listeners and viewers, um, it's a three year replenishment. The global fund has asked for 18 billion. That's a 30% rise over the last three year cycle. It wants to do more in those three diseases. It wants to do more in, in, in providing support in broader health, health security and. Peter Sands and the Global Fund have huge credibility because they have been in the course of the pandemic uh, so remarkably innovative and courageous and fast moving in, in in doing all of the above. And so they're entering this equation with us. Their star is very high and deservedly so. And they're and, and, and it's hard to find, you know, an instrument that has had greater impact and shown greater creativity and courage in the midst of all of this and delivered on, on those things. I mean, the U.S. government rewarded uh, the fund with a, 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 an emergency allocation of three and a half billion on top of our normal contributions. And they used that to great effect. The U.S. commitment is a third of whatever the aggregate yeah. number is. So if they can get to 18, we're gonna go to Congress and get commitments of two billion per year over the next three years, 20, 30% increase. We're committed. President Biden is hosting this. He's the host, the Washington uh, along with, you know, the other the other major donors and uh, including the regional bodies and uh, African leadership and will be uh working the phones. Now, will they get to 18? There we know the chaos that it, that it currently is is in London. We know the economic sh- sh- uh strife uh hard straits that the uk government has hit so uh, are they able to deliver a 30 percent rise or do they have a 30 or 40 percent cut that's a very real issue uh
0: you know and it's something we are you know advocates are really working on and right i i really think the jury is out yeah and really worried
1: you look at uh the chaos in in rome at the moment we're likely to have a Government led by, you know, possibly by Georgia Maloney, a sort of neo-fascist movement in alliance with Berlusconi and Salvini's parties. What are they going to think about this? Uh, How 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 much are they going to go to the mat on this? Uh, The French Macron has to, you know, he has to walk a little bit more Mm -hmm. delicately after the collapse of of his alliance or his party base within parliament. So it's a, it's a period uh, where there's a lot of, you know, we're on the edge of economic recession. We have all of the demands that we've talked about associated with the Ukraine crisis uh, on the human level and on the economic level and the security requirements for that. And, and now we have, have this. And so it's difficult. I think they will do okay. And I, because of the, Durability, I think the Japanese will be pretty strong. The Americans are going to be strong. The Canadians, we'll see how the Canadians do. Um, The EU, uh, very interesting there as well. I, I would caution to say, though, that if it comes in, if ultimately the number that's attained is lower than 18, let's say it's 16 or even 15, we should not declare that as a defeat. Right. That should be seen for what it is, which is an affirmation of the mission of the Global Fund and the centrality of the fund. And yes, we wish it would be higher, and um, and we don't want to get too much enthralled in accepting those lower numbers. But if we have those lower numbers, there's still a gain over the exit over the prior budgets in the midst of amazing adversity. So let's be, let's not get ourselves into a mix where we wind up devaluing things that are great achievements, actually.
0: Well, that leads us very nicely into our wrap-up question, Steve. Reasons to be cheerful. And I'm premiering this with you. Uh, um, my final question for, for for guests going forward is, why should we have reasons to be cheerful? Taken from um, the name of an old Ian Dury and the Blockhead song, which was well before my time, of course, but um, Ian Dury was a uh, national treasure in the UK. So, uh, what are reasons to be cheerful, Steve? What are you optimistic about?
1: Look, um, I don't think any of us um, go into this work and stay in this work who don't retain a basic fundamental optimism in the ability of people to mobilize and stay the course in, in that mission. Um, And we are still in the midst of a historic period of enormous gains. And we have institutions that have proven their worth and their durability over now several decades. We have some new institutions coming forward. Uh, And, and so, I remain optimistic on that score. I may remain optimistic also um, on the science and technology side of things because we are in a period where, you know, for the HIV crisis, it was the development of ARTs and then the mobilizations to make sure that they were affordable and equitable and, and, and disseminated to those who needed them. And we've had enormous success. Um, with monkeypox, we face this challenge now of figuring out how to get the best vaccines available, get tests out, get therapies out, and begin to push them to where they are truly needed. And, and that includes Central and, 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 and West Africa. That's, that's going to be difficult. And COVID, we, the COVID battle is not over. The, vac- mm. the, the virus is not uh, not gone. The virus is going to continue to remind us and prod us. To do better and so for all of those reasons i think we need to be vigilant but optimistic about what's going to happen this is a tough time this is a time of adversity this is a time of extraordinary multiple concurrent crises geopolitical economic uh, uh health security but but we we have many tools of a political and operational and and technological type that we can fi- we can we can bring to the table. Thank you.
0: No, and I think you know this is our moment. This is what our generations who are alive now are, are here to do. We have to maintain that optimism, and I I completely share that. Well, Steve, I got to say thank you so much for a really enlightening and informative uh, conversation. There's so much to digest here. Um, you are a shot in the arm. Thanks so much, Ben. This is really a pleasure and I'll see you in Montreal. See you in Montreal. Well, that's it for this episode. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to Steve Morrison. Um, if you'd like to know more about CSIS, visit their website at www.csis.org. Thanks to Eric Espera, our producer and director from Newsdoc Media. And finally, a big thanks to you. You can find us on all podcast platforms and on our YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars. Well, have a safe week and a great week, everyone.